Today's reading from the Word of God comes from a combination of Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's a combination of Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, and Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence a secret. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him to send him. Send her, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, first let the children eat all they want. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the, their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've got this. Friends, today we are continuing our sermon series, Mosaic, Many Voices of God's Unified Story. Uh, throughout the summer, we have been hearing from some of the people in our church that have ministry experience or training, inviting them to preach uh, about whatever the Lord has been putting on their hearts in this season. It's been such a great blessing to hear the word of the Lord preached through so many different voices within our church. And today, we have the blessing of hearing from our very own Adele Calhoun. If you don't know Adele, uh, Adele is an author and speaker and spiritual director. Uh, she is a certified Enneagram trainer, a drainer. Her book, Spiritual Rhythms for the Enneagram, that she wrote alongside her wonderful husband, Doug, is a fantastic book. It's been a very meaningful book to me and I'm sure many of us in the congregation. One thing that Adele loves to do and is very good at doing is helping people see the ways that God is at work in their lives and giving them tools to live into those spaces well. 
But on top of all of that, Adele is a dear friend and a wonderful co-partner in ministry and in the gospel. And I'm so glad that she and Doug are part of our church family and our church community. So friends, please help me welcome up Adele Calhoun. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Um, my name's Adele. Doug is sitting back there. And we retired from the pastoral staff of High Rock Arlington in 2021. Uh, we still do spiritual direction for their staff as well as their ministry leaders and for ministry leaders across the country. So retiring from pastoral ministry... After 37 years, we get to choose which church we go to. And so we visited a number of churches on the North Shore, and eventually we dropped anchor here at Anchor Bay. And we're so glad to be getting to know your wonderful staff and sort of you, this intriguing group of human beings. So uh, I've listened to enough sermons to know how the mind wanders. So I want to take a moment here for you to be able to collect yourself and to be here not in what's happening later or not what is disturbing you right now. Take a few moments in silence and ask God to give you ears to hear what he has to say to you today. Thank you for your presence, Lord Jesus, and open our ears and our eyes to the beauty of who you are and the gifts that you have for us. In your name, amen. So over the years, I've become more and more heartsick about Christians arguing about what's right and what's wrong in Scripture, and about what Jesus says. So I decided that I was going to explore the reactions and the emotions that Jesus had. I wanted to see what was going on inside of him. What made Jesus frustrated, sad, happy, surprised, encouraged, exhausted, tempted, critical, weepy? When did his behavior produce hostility and at the same moment produce popularity? How did that happen? And how was his experience mirrored in my own excessively human life? Paul writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So what do I have in common with Jesus' human life? He was misunderstood. Check. He had family conflict. Check. Friends let him down and betrayed him. Check. His theology was suspect. You can't be a pastor and not have your theology be sup. So check. His life included daily interruptions, interrogations, human need. Check, check, check. And Paul continues, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not come to earth as a superhero God. He was not one in in the Marvel series. He's not wielding a hammer or a lightning bolt. He didn't use a divine shield to protect him from human meanness and conflict and death. Jesus didn't come into this world knowing everything. Look at Matthew 24, 36. Jesus came the way we all did, vulnerable and crying for his mother's breast. Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. Jesus is not either God or man. He is both and. And this is way above my pay grade to explain, so I'm just going to leave it there. But suffice it to say, Jesus stands in solidarity with God and with humanity. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not call 10,000 angels to fight for him. He sweat blood and asked God for an 11th hour rescue, just like I have. And there are a lot of Old Testament 11th hour rescues, so there was a precedent for that. But Jesus doesn't rescue, isn't rescued in the nick of time. Jesus wasn't airlifted out of an unjust execution. He wasn't exempt from human vulnerability and emotions. And when things didn't go as he asked God, when there was no 11th hour rescue, Jesus learned the taste of human trust, what it means to risk. In Luke 2.52, we read, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And in Hebrews 5, the author says, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was not excluded from the excruciatingly hard lessons of love and obedience and trust. And neither are we. So when things don't go as I planned, I could learn to trust God's goodness and unlearn my control streak, and I have one. And when I'm hurt or stressed or mad, I could grow and I could unlearn some automatic behaviors that I'm very good at, like denial and rationalization and blame. I could stay the same, or I could learn things that I'm not very good at, like patience and love and generosity and kindness. And Jesus' life intersects with my story. His human example invites me to grow and learn and risk on God's goodness, just as he does. So recently, I was given an unwanted opportunity to grow in trusting God's goodness. For 11 months, my son has suffered a debilitating case of long COVID. Heart palpitations, exhaustion, weakness, migraines. And when he says his future looks like an old person sitting in a rocker watching other people live, 
it's like a wrecking ball through my chest. He physically hurts, and because he physically hurts, I physically hurt. And there are so many people whose lives aren't going as planned. And today's text invites me to find my current situation in Jesus' story. Scripture is there so you can find your place in it. Your story is there. So let me give you some context. Prior to this passage that we read today, earlier in Mark 15 and Mark 7, Jesus is embroiled in conflict around Jewish protocols and the we they divide. And religious purists are certain that God's mercy and blessing are reserved for law-abiding Jews. And they are disgusted with Jesus and his followers because they violate these mosaic purity codes and they eat with unwashed hands. They resist Jesus' teaching that purity is about what's going on in your heart rather than external contamination. And Jesus says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going in. Rather, it is what comes out that defiles a person. Now, chew on that for a moment, because that is revolutionary. What comes out, not what's out there. That's what defiles. So the debate about washing hands seems very trivial to us, but it smacks to me of our culture's current obsession with eating clean. And you are either an enlightened, virtuous, clean eater, or you are unclean, an unclean eater who is not pure, like the rest of us. The we, they, either, me, either or divide are very much with us, and they take a toll. And in Jesus, uh, in our text today, that either or, we, they divide, and the backlash of who's clean and unclean is central to the story. And it's the backdrop for this text. And Jesus and his disciples are really exhausted because stress exhausts the nervous system. And so he and his disciples are seeking a place where no one knows them and where they can rest and get some R&R. &R. Not in Israel, but outside Israel. And so they literally head to Syrophoenicia, and that's the land of Israel's old enemies, the Canaanites. And there they check in to a Gentile Airbnb that doesn't have a kosher kitchen, and they accept the hospitality of those unclean, unwashed outsiders. Talk about Jesus making a point about what does and does not contaminate you. He goes right into the contaminated Gentile area. And there, he can't even be uh, left alone there. It says in Mark 7, Jesus could not keep his presence a secret because a desperate mother fitting every Jewish stereotype for those people <laughs> gets wind of Jesus' presence. And she is utterly outside the law of Moses, 
outside the blessing of Israel's God, and her taboo behavior violates Jewish codes of decency up one side and down the other. Furthermore, she is shamefully unaccompanied by a husband or a male who will speak for her. And she shamelessly makes a nuisance of herself by yelling any title for Jesus she could have heard. Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Help me, Jesus, help me. Son of David, have mercy. And it's driving the disciples crazy. This woman lived in a different time, is of a different race, and has a different religion than me. I don't know if her daughter's torment is relentless. Does she seize? Does she harm herself? Does she need 24-7 attention? I don't know. But I do know her heartbroken cry for her child. My whole being resonates with agony and fear of not knowing how to help your child not knowing how. And like this woman, sometimes the first, first thing I yell at God when my child is suffering is, God, have mercy on me. <laughs> have mercy on me. I'm drowning. I can't breathe. My child's suffering is my own, and it is too much for me. And this is where that woman begins. And it really matters to me how Jesus responds to yelling and begging for relief from stress and grief. Matthew 15, 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Not a word. So I wonder if Jesus' slowness to speak was meant to give the disciples an opportunity to use their agency. They're there. They could embody what Jesus was teaching them just yesterday when he asked them, are you still so dull? You just could be kind of in your face. <laughs> are you still so dull? It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. It's not out there in the world. It comes from within a person's heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly inside, inside you. Would the disciples question their certainties about external purity and stereotypes? Did they have eyes to see an outsider with that scarlet sea on her chest for Canaanite as somebody that mattered? Would their behavior reinforce that we, they divide? Could they feel for and stand in solidarity with another needy human being like Jesus does again and again? Well, the disciples, his followers, they don't have the time of day for her. She is not one of them. She is not like them. She's a Gentile. And they 
don't even speak to her. They don't want to get dirty by talking to her. They won't even talk to her at all. And so they push Jesus to get rid of her. You sent her away. For she's making a nuisance of herself, and she keeps crying out after us. And very sadly, the church can adopt the same excluding mindset that the disciples had and the religious Jewish establishment had. Those flawed outsiders need to clean up their act to qualify for belonging and to find God's mercy. They need to become like us good Bible-believing guys and gals. They need to be like us. And there are lots of examples that abound. But I'm going to take one from the 1980s and 90s because at that point there was a, a well-intentioned Christian purity movement. And I don't know how many of you remember it, but my kids were in the middle of it. And it was, in that movement, it said, you know, no wearing of provocative clothing, no drinking, no dancing, no making out, no sex, no watching R-rated movies, no looking at porn. And all of those external no's, and then the girls wore a purity ring, that was evidence of your virtue. There was a book that became quite well known then called Just Kiss Dating Goodbye. And then God will provide you with a spouse, and on your wedding night, all those no's will magically disappear, and your sexuality in all its glory will emerge, or, or not. There is so much wrong with this reasoning that isolates some external behavior as a marker of your internal goodness. So much shame and damage is done by judging purity by appearance and stereotype. You are not like us good people. So back to Jesus' eventual response. Jesus gives both the disciples and the woman his purpose statement. And that's kind of weird. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I imagine the disciples hear the word only, and they go, yeah, only. We knew it. It's a hard no. She's not our problem. Yet, in spite of Jesus' literal words about Israel's lost sheep, the woman has ears to hear something different than the disciples here. Jesus says the same thing. She hears something different. In Matthew 15, 25, she comes before him and says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She risks that Jesus' heart for lost sheep might include her. Might include her. And Jesus responds to her and says, first... Let the children, and he means the Jewish children, eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the Gentile dogs. And then much to the horror of the disciples, this scandalous scarlet sea woman simply contradicts him, contradicts the rabbi. She says, yes, it is right, Lord. He just said it's not right. Oh, yes, it is right. And then she interprets 
Jesus' wee parable through the lens of her own experience. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She, both, she basically says, it's not an either-or situation. This is a both-and situation. Every mother knows that kids need to eat their dinner before they feed the dogs under the table. Don't we all? So we shoot, shoot, get out of here. Go, go, get out of here. But sooner or later, your heart softens and you hand the pup a bite of your sandwich. And the woman comeback, his, her comeback impacts Jesus. A woman technically outside of the blessing of Israel has ears to hear Jesus' purpose in a larger frame than the disciples or the religious Jewish leaders. She gets Jesus' priorities, and she gets that those priorities emerge from within, from a merciful heart rather than some external law, which means Jesus' purpose does not exclude her. And Jesus is really impressed with this woman, really impressed that she contradicted him, really impressed that she had the courage to say what she knew. And he says to her, for such a reply as this, because of what you said, for such a reply as this, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. The woman's reply had consequences, not just for her, but for Jesus. Because her words created a pivotal, a pivotal moment for inclusion. And I wonder if Jesus didn't say a prayer, whisper at that moment, Abba, did you hear what she said? She gets it. She gets my purpose. Should I risk revealing that you so loved the world that you gave your only son? You loved the world? Is this the moment to stand in solidarity with her and with you? and blow up the religious, cultural, ethnic, we, they divide. Is this the moment? Can I offer Israel's blessing of bread to this outsider right now? For such a reply as this, there is an opportunity for Jesus to reveal the vastness of God's mercy and attention that reaches way beyond the Jews to all the theys of the world, to enemies and misfits and egomaniacs, to gluttons and closet sensualists and stuffed shirts and odd ducks and wise acres and winners and losers and Democrats and Republicans and refugees and politicians and know-it-alls and blabbermouths and holier-than-thous and a lot more all of whom sit in this room today. We're all here. In Matthew's account, Jesus astonishes the disciples and the woman with these words. He tells that woman, this outsider, non-Jew, you have great faith. Seriously, great faith? 
How much can an illiterate Canaanite outsider know about Jesus and the Jewish scripture or prophecy? Does she understand who the son of David is, what it even means? How can risking on a thread of rumor or hearsay or something she got wind of be great faith? Listen, risk is the other side of the coin of trust. Without vulnerability, without risk, you can't build trust. Trust and faith aren't correct doctrine or scriptural proof texting. Trust isn't certainty. If you have certainty, you don't need faith. Because both faith and trust risk, in Hebrews 11, on the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen. And that's what this woman does. She risks that Jesus' mercy and goodness are bigger than stereotypes and deficits and shame and the we they divide. She risks that in spite of her fatal flaws of religion, race, and taboo behavior, Jesus might at least have as much mercy for her as you and I do for our dogs. She trusts his priorities are both and. And I love how Jesus responds to this woman because external stereotyping doesn't blind Jesus to the internal cries of her heart. He sees the we-they differences and still identifies with her cry for mercy. Jesus has eyes to see great faith where the disciples saw none. Do you see? Jesus provides us with an example of how to recognize great faith in people who don't look like you and me. Can you feel the freedom and the relief that comes in knowing that a human cry for mercy counts as faith? I'm risking on you, God. As of now, my son continues to have long COVID. And every morning I wake up and remind myself that I can pray like this woman. Lord, help me. Have mercy on me. My son is severely dot, dot, dot. I'm not alone. I am in solidarity with her and with all who risk that the heart of God's love, the heart of God's mercy is big enough for me. But I am also in solidarity with Jesus because Jesus didn't get a charmed life because he was the Messiah. He got a life like mine with human vulnerabilities and joys and suffering. And in that life, Jesus grew and learned. (laughs) Jesus grew and learned how to hold priorities and take a heart that still stands in solidarity with all those lost sheep of this world. You and me and the Canaanite woman. In the garden, facing imminent death, Jesus risks asking God for mercy, just like this woman did. He says, my father, if it is possible, 
may this cup be taken from me. And when he doesn't get what he asks for, Jesus risks on evidence of things not seen. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Great risk, great faith. Naked and hanging on the cross with no 11th hour rescue, Jesus gasps out our existential question. My God, why have you forsaken me? My God, where are you? And yet, even when Jesus feels God forsaken, he risks, which is trust, that God is still my God. My God. You're still my God. And we only use the words my for those we love most dearly. And Jesus' last words are words of great risk and great love. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. Great faith. So out of the horror of Jesus' crucifixion, God brought eternal good, eternal hope, and eternal life. And if God could bring good out of that most dreadful of events, there is nothing God can't turn for your good and your growth and his glory. Jesus showed us in his life that there are no outsiders to God's love. Every single one of us lost sheep is Jesus' priority. And you don't need to clean up your act or have perfect speech to risk a conversation with Jesus. Because Jesus knows how messy human life is. And so he constantly prays his feelings and his desires and his questions to my God, my God. Daniel Siegel says, what is shareable is bearable. And Fred Rogers, God bless his soul, says, what is mentionable is manageable. And it is in sharing our life that we grow in wisdom, obedience, understanding, and trust. We share what is true. And you don't need to be anyone else but your needy self. Like the Canaanite woman, take a deep breath and start a question, start a conversation with Jesus. Mention your need. Mention your doubt. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Jesus, have mercy on me. My son, my daughter, my friend, my marriage, my country is severely dot, dot, dot. Risk, that's trust. That Jesus' heart is crazy big enough and filled with love and mercy. And there is room in that heart for you and all the rest of us. Let's pray. God, you are so big and you are so near. 
And we thank you that you have room in your heart for us. No matter how far outside the pale we may feel or seem. We thank you that you love us, that you receive us where we are, and you help us to grow. In your name, amen.